Blessed be the fruit listeners. Under his eye, everyone. Welcome back to the Pop Culture Theologians. We are so excited you're back with us in Gilead, uh, decompressing and, you know, deconstructing uh, season three of The Handmaid's Tale. Um, Make sure you're following us on social media at Pop Theologians on Facebook and Twitter. You can follow me at jerickson85 and Handmaid of Brent. Off Brent. Uh, Off Brent, where can we find you? Are you allowed to be on the internet now? <laughs> it's, I'm technically off Grizzly. And, um, off Grizzly? He has no, no thumbs, so he lets me use the internet for him, which is nice. So everyone, you can find me on Twitter at I am the men who can. Um, come at me. Like, not really come at me, but like, come talk to me. Send me your thoughts. Send me, a, send me your feels. Send me poems, poetry, long walks on the Gifts. Do what you do what you gotta do. Um, but you come find it. me on Twitter. <laughs> um, so Marcy, instead of doing news of the week, you're gonna do something really important. Um, what are you gonna do? I am. So I feel like we all know the news that is going on and it changes minute by minute. What does not change is your rights if ice shows up at your door. And so we're going to honor all the folks who will spend the next couple of weeks waiting to see what happens. Um, and the folks and children that are locked up in the uh, concentration camps across the country that are for profit and are illegal and a violation of human rights by letting you know, if ICE agents show up at your door, do not open the door, stay calm. You have rights. And I'm going to put an asterisk here because it's like a free for all right now, but this is technically what your rights are. Um, and follow this as best as you can. If anything happens, um, if we are still a lawful state, this applies. Um, ask whoever is knocking what they are there for. You have the right to ask for an interpreter if you need one. If they ask to enter your property and your car, if you get stopped at a car raid, which, um, They are happening, actually, uh, my parents witnessed one this past weekend here in Fort Lauderdale, um, where they were just randomly pulling cars off the street. Um, Do not roll down your window or open your door or open your house door. For them to come in, they need a warrant signed by a judge, not by ICE itself. So there's this paperwork that is signed by ICE officials. That is not a warrant by a judge. Um, Please Google that there's images that will show you the difference, but they do need a warrant signed by a judge. And if so, they need to slip it through, uh, like underneath the door or through a window to you so you can see, you need to be able to see it, have eyes on it. If what they have is an ICE signed document, uh, you can refuse to let them in tell them that they need to have a judge signed warrant to enter the premises and that if there is any information that they would like to leave, they can leave it at your fucking door. If they leave force it at your fucking door, leave it at the fucking door. Uh, if they force their way in to your house or your car, this is really hard. Do not resist. Uh, and tell everyone in, the, in the, your residency or in your car to stay silent. Um, this means a lot of us, particularly those of us that are first generation brown folks, which is who they're targeting currently, 
Um, you need to have really, really, really awful conversations with your loved ones and with your neighbors and with your coworkers, documented or undocumented. Because I'm not particularly sure when they round people up, if and when they round people up, they have been. I have a friend who literally was rounded up and was in ICE detention for almost seven months. Um, you just need to have conversations about this. So if they do come in, uh, don't resist, stay silent. That is the safest thing you can do. Um, any sort of altercation can put any lives at risk in that space. If you are arrested, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to ask for a lawyer and you do not sign anything. Like do not sign a single fucking thing, like anything. Um, those are your rights. Uh, it, these are really, really scary time. Uh, if you know folks who are underdocumented, undocumented, or if you know families that have mixed status, which is what most of us, um, I think have, have a lot of is families that are mixed status. Um, there's a couple things like that, I, that we recommend a hundred percent. One is have a plan. Like, again, have this conversation, have the conversation like about what could happen, what your rights are, have that conversation with the elderly folks in your family and the young kids in the best way that you can. And I know that's difficult. Um, the second thing is have power of attorney ready. If your family or your neighbors, your loved ones, your coworkers have families of mixed status, power of attorney is extremely important when it comes to those kids because they will get put into these. They're not, they're not waiting for you to produce documentation. They are rounding up folks. So, um, so that's just have plans in place. Um, but most importantly, know that we are all in this together. Um, if there's anything that history has taught us is if they come for one of us, they come for all of us. No one is safe. Um, but we're in this together. And um, for those of you that are not in danger of, of being rounded up in these raids or ending up at an ICE detention center, not through a raid, but by whatever, you are the first line of resistance. Call your congressman, call your folks, call everyone who will listen and demand that these atrocities end. Do you belong to a church? Call your church and ask it why it has not declared itself a sanctuary uh, in your city. Like, it makes absolutely no sense. Remind them of Bethlehem. Remind them of what, like, there's so much you can do as an ally right now. I honestly think that the raids that were called off yesterday, um, we're recording today is Sunday, but they were that were called off yesterday and postponed for two weeks. The only reason that happened is because of the outcry publicly, not only from Latino folks, but from everyone in general and the bad press and the calls to the congressman and the fact that police forces were like, we will not be cooperating and the governors were like, we are sanctuary states. All of that matters. So if you're like, I don't know a single undocumented person or underdocumented person, that's fine. There's still tons of work for you to do. Um, and hopefully you understand that like, this is bigger than, this is bigger than just like a border issue. This is a human rights issue. And again, if, if we've learned anything from history is, if we've learned anything from Handmaid's Tale is no one is safe uh, in an oppressive society that disregards human rights. So that's our cover for the week. So faithful listeners, 
Are you ready to venture back into Gilead for episodes three and four? What about you, Marcy? I think it's exciting. Okay, I have been enjoying, enjoying is not not like a great word for it, but I have been fully immersed in these episodes. We're going to have to make sure we get a therapy appointment on the books for you. Um, (laughs) But I'm in the same boat. This is an an amazing season. I watched these episodes hugging both my dogs. (laughs) Yeah. Well, under his eye. (laughs) That would be the fruit. All right. So let's start off with what worked in episode three. We're going to do this exactly like we've been doing it, which is more looking at some of the themes that are coming up in these episodes versus like, we assume you watch the episode, you'll know what we're talking about. So the episode opens with a bunch of Martha bodies swinging in a town square. Um, This kind of reminded me a little bit of the Hunger Games where um, if anyone did anything, any sort of resistance in District 12, right, like they were brought to the square kind of deal, and it's like a warning to everyone, right? Like, um, and this is, this is accurate for authoritarian regimes. Uh, the use of violence as a reminder that there are consequences to dissent and resisting is a very real thing, um, so... Yeah, it's almost like one of those warning signs because obviously Gilead is on to the Marthas being part and leading the resistance. And obviously with the kidnapping of Nicole, you know, being, you know, led through Martha's, you know, they're really, really pushing for something here. Well, and the way that I think of it is we're getting the story of Gilead through the lens of one person. How many other acts of resistance that don't involve June are happening, right? Exactly. Um, Something I think the show has done very well is to not center June as some type of generalized hero. June is but a person in Gilead. Um, There's a million other stories to be told. And I think that that actually differentiates it from something like the Hunger Games where Katniss is the, (laughs) the savior of the world. June is not the savior of shit. So it's just that she is our narrator. And I think that that is important to note. So seeing this Mar- these Marthas is a reminder of how vast the network of resistance is. Um, but one thing that this does, I think, show June, which we talked about when we recorded about episodes one and two, is that she's done resisting alone. And she realizes that she needs allies to if resist. If she's going to win. If she's going to win, if she's going to make it out alive, if she's going to save Hannah, she needs allies. And like, that is, that is like a very important moment for folks who do resistance work on the ground, right? Um, So a lot of us who do any sort of activism and whatnot probably started out at like age six being like, I'm a vegetarian because I love animals. It's like very, like, I feel like there's a lot of like, a lot of our stories are similar. Like we, like it's folks who are like, feel a call to do a certain type of work are also deep, like deeply empathetic to do a fault, I will admit. Um, but there comes a point where very good folks who do this work decenter themselves, right? So like where the narrative stops being about you doing good work and the narrative starts being about how do we get this work done, right? And I think this is the moment where June 
goes from I am resisting and I will save my daughter to we are resisting and we will save our daughters. Those are two very different foundations for resistance. Um, so I think that's it's actually really important that like we get the inner dialogue of her recognizing that the work that the Marthas are doing are just as is just as badass and powerful as the stuff that she's done or that Serena's done or that like Emily did. Um, Joseph. Right. That 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 like there's just a bigger picture, and I am a part of it, and it is perfectly fine for me to be a part of it, but that it's a bigger picture. Yeah, so. I can't do this alone. And I think too that she recognizes that she needs people on the ground like her, but also, and you know this actually better than I do because I don't work, I don't do any type of political, like I work outside of of the political sphere, but she recognizes she needs people higher up as well. And so the fact, like she realizes that it's not enough to have the Martha's network for them. To, she realizes that she's in a unique position to maybe influence some of the, the power brokers that meaning like commander waterford serena uh commander lawrence um and you she needs know to this. make them complicit within the work that she's doing and she's not, not beginning even complicit, i think it's the right word i mean when you are in in la like petitioning for some bill to pass you don't just do canvassing in neighborhoods you also try to find allies up top right like Exactly. I mean, yeah. she's, she needs to make them regard she, and she needs to do it so subtly, you know, subtly. So because they like, don't even realize that they're not part exactly. of Exactly. And that's what she's doing. And she's, and she's winning it right now. Right. 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 So, um, yes. So this episode has an interesting, an interesting scene where, so Serena is still not back at house Waterford that burnt down or whatever new mansion they, they moved Of into. Crisp Waterford. <laughs> Crispy Waterford house. The Toast House. Um, she's still with her mom, and there's this, like, very... So this episode gives us a little backstory on Serena and her mom. Her mom is, like, a Cold Stone, like, religious bitch. <laughs> like, I don't really know how to describe it other than, like, she's not just, like, a mad, crazy for Gilead woman. She's also extremely detached from her child and like um, her biological child too. So that we know of actually, I don't, I don't want to actually confirm that, but I think biological child. Yeah, no, hundred percent biological child. Sorry. That's like the dumbest thing I've said. Um, Serena was an architect to Gilead, but either way, the mom. So you see her kind of like dealing with like not knowing what to do with Serena because during this time, you wouldn't have wives protesting anything. So her daughter is in and of itself a problem. And she has this like prayer circle that she invites Serena to just sit in. And her mom legit reads her like fucking RuPaul reads some of his queens. Like that prayer circle, she's like, and for my daughter who like totally betrayed her husband and they're like totally not doing the ceremonies anymore and is like totally a disappointment. And like that, that like, Pinky totally lost it. Like, it's like a very, very strange moment if you've never been, like, prayed over in a prayer circle. So, Marcy, does, what, did, what did you think of this scene? So, I think that this scene is probably very difficult for folks to understand who have never been Serena in that moment. Um, so, Catholicism generally doesn't do prayer circles. Like, 
evangelical Christianity in the U.S. definitely does. And these circles are very common. I was in an evangelical Catholic uh, organization, so I've seen these happen. This is exactly what happens. Like you will be like at youth group and there'll be like prayer circle and you're sitting there and it's like someone will be like, I'd like to pray for Marcy. And you have no idea it's coming. It's like, I feel like her heart, it's just not here. I can feel her dissenting. That college Democrat pin is really concerning. She has a lot of gay friends, which mm, like I've literally lived this moment. And I can tell you that her mother is not purposefully being cruel. It is extremely cruel, but she thinks she is being magnanimous and merciful in that moment, which makes it a horrific moment. Um, but rings very true to me. What about you? I mean, I've never been in a religious situation. Prayer circle? Like, can I see you? <laughs> Yeah, let's do it. Um, but I just get like the Serena giving her mom the look, being like, you bitch. Like, you know, when she like sells her out of the river, like Serena has no one. I mean, literally. And you just see that she's, ha she's really struggling with her identity. Well, and you know, like different forms of Christianity have this idea of, of communal confession, right? That like, that somehow there's this power. And I do believe in the power of, of, personally us coming to terms with the harm we have inflicted on ourselves or others right i don't believe in the idea of catholic confession where like some random rando can just forgive me of my sins i don't believe in these persicles being able to do it i do think there's power in truth being told right but that's not what this moment is this moment is a moment to purposely to a certain extent center serena's experience back in the community because her mom tells her multiple times, like, enough with the self-pity, right? She's harming the community, and the community is bigger than Serena. Serena, according to Gilead, according to the community, according to her mother, who is a very good example of a woman who serves as an oppressor for men, is like, suck it up, buttercup. You need to go home and, like, sit there while your husband rapes some woman. And don't you ever fucking let go of a child again, right? So, um... And, and again, the hardest part, I think, for people to understand is that Serena's mom would not be doing that from a place of harm. She would honestly think she was doing the best she could for her daughter. And that's, that's exactly it. Terrifying. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then we have some interesting kind of conversations with Commander Lawrence that I thought we should kind of hit on. Yeah. Um, so you and I have like, okay, so in the last couple episodes in this one, let's actually start with Commander Waterford. June seems to have a kind of conflicted relationship with him. And I think the show is very brave for doing this because it is easier to write, I fucking hate my rapists and my oppressors than it is to write. I probably have a tiny bit of Stockholm syndrome and the situation is complicated and I don't know what to do with it. And I think they're doing a very good job of like being okay with navigating the messiness of the relationships versus maybe what I, what I initially instinctually am like, she would never, ever, ever like 
forgive or associate with like Serena or I mean they're doing what Game of Thrones couldn't or wouldn't do right we've talked about my love of nuanced characters I don't think Commander Waterford is nuanced I think he is every dopey religious dude I've ever met but um but I understand or here I'll I'll phrase the question for you how do you feel about about June openly admitting that she's not even sure why there's a part of her that feels anything for Commander Waterford and Serena? Well, I think when you look at just June's life in regards to everything that's been going on, I mean, they've been an integral role. I mean, I don't want to say that they're family, but like, you know, I think when you look at the ways in which June's life has been shaped from the angle that we've seen it at, you know, with Serena and Commander Waterford, like they've been a part of the resistance, you know, either willingly or unwillingly. I mean, she was attracted to Commander Waterford um, in some way, shape or form. I think that there was like this allure that there was there. I mean, because I know in the show, you know, in the book and the old movie, like, you know, there's the whole love story thing. But I mean, you know, then with Nick as well. And it's it's very complicated. I don't think she ever has like romantic feelings for him. I think she has pity. I think she definitely has romantic feelings for Nick, 100%. And I think she has pity for Commander Waterford and pity can mingle in with a lot. Um, I think that's that pity that's confusing me because I still don't understand how June feels about him in a way. I do think that pity, though, turns into some type of care. I don't know. It's really weird how they're... But they're 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 complicating the nature because of everything that they've been through together. Um, and I agree with you that, you know, instead of just painting it as... Um, they're getting it like it, it's, rapist, it's but complicated it's like they're complicating the nature because this is all june is here she's not getting out like she has to live in this society in this environment but what is she doing through her resistance but what is she doing through the manipulation that she's obviously trying to invoke and, and onto waterford and serena too well and i think you know fundamentally you and i complained last episode that commander waterford and serena to a certain extent being accessories to the exit of Commander Waterford not knowingly until afterward, his decisions afterward make him complicit and then, um, or an an accessory to Serena and June for sure. The three of them technically did a crime together. And I think that is a big part of it. Um, I think that, um, and we get some of this in, is it episode three or four? It is, yeah, in episode four. We get some background on um june's religiosity which i think plays into this as well um so i think i think there's like yeah it's like a melancholy kind of like i don't really even know what to do with you like i do hate you and i would have killed you but i simultaneously to a certain extent you are a a nuanced kind of person in my life so it's just interesting to watch them do it um with lawrence commander lawrence I think it's not working as well for me, and we've talked about this, but I will say that something that stuck with me in this episode is June kind of pissed offedly asks Commander Lawrence, if he is who he says he is, then why is he letting Mayday run this underground railroad from his house? And he says something so horrifying. He says, um, it's helpful to let them like think they're resisting and have some 
some ability to blow off some steam, which clearly means that he thinks this resistance is a joke. Like they really aren't going to win this. But yeah, they, I mean, they think they can, or else happen. they would like commit suicide, right? Like, I think he's like this white privileged, you know, commander with all this power and position, and he's like doing it because he's bored. There's there's this blaséness to how he answers, and I think like it's almost like he's watching like a computer game that he built happen, like a Sims simulation, and he doesn't see that these are real people. For him, he's the player in a Sims game. And he has yet to contend with the fact that, like, no, he really did build it. Like, it's not just a theoretical, hypothetical. And you and I are academics. We are guilty of doing this, about talking about things in hypotheticals without realizing the, like, actual real-life ramifications of some of the things that we talk about. Um, so I, I do think that, but I did think that him saying, like, they have to be able to, to resist a little bit or else we'd lose them is, like, that's terrifying. Like, that's so terrifying. We have to give them a little bit of hope, even though we know we're going to destroy them. Even though we're, yeah. And I think we've seen that in modern politics today, which is really kind of scary. Yeah. Um, and then, like, Lawrence mentions that, like, the, specifically to, to June, which she didn't know at that time, that the reason he helped Emily, because she's kind of saying, like, help us, help me. Like, help me get Hannah. Like, help me. You helped Emily. And he's like, um, I got Emily out because she was one hell of a fucking scientific brain, right? And I guess, like, it, for him, she was a biochemist, right? Like, she could potentially figure out why women stopped having kids. Like, so there might still be a Gilead-esque reason to let her out. Um, and then he kind of lets on. He goes, you think I don't know anything about you, June? Like, you were a fucking editor at like a book publisher. Like, why would we get you out? And I think uh, coming from the humanities, that is a sting that hurts. Yeah. Like, I'm like, like, okay, all right, all right. It's like, I see. I see, see you. I see you. <laughs> but then she's like, isn't that what you used to do? Write some, a bunch of fucking esoteric books. You weren't solving cancer. You were writing a bunch of bullshit. And yeah, like, June's got some great singers. Moment. Yeah, it's such a good moment. Um, and again, this episode has like tremendous music. Always great. I mean, it, the soundtracks are incredible. Right, right. Um, so, so this episode, it really consists of like a very kind of like fish eye look at Serena at her mother's house. Yeah, And to a certain extent, to understand the type of rigidity that built the woman who Serena used to be, a woman who could build such a horrible thing with Lawrence and, and others. And support it. And support it, and why she would support it. Um, and then we get a look at June trying to deconstruct another one of the architects, and realizing both, like, both of the technically the three architects of Gilead that she knows and I'd say the word architect because it's different than compliant like officer or anything we know from the books that like Fred and Serena 100% were the face of the movement towards Gilead right they were like they were it they were like the Jared and Ivanka um and then Lawrence he doesn't hate Jewish people we're Jewish I can't, I can't. And then Lawrence is fundamentally kind of like the economist slash sociologist who came up with all of it. And the three that she's encountered, she's like, she sees the cracks. 
So if there's cracks in these three, there's cracks everywhere. And I think that's what this episode is kind of showing us that like this, that there, this will inevitably start to self destruct and like to self, to help move that along the resistance needs to know the ways in which these people break. Um, speaking of Serena at her house, talk to me about the scene that moved you at the end of this episode. I mean, tears. I mean, Serena's really struggles to find herself in this episode or in the last two episodes. And what you really see her is like, there's been a lot of baptismal references. There's a lot of rebirth imagery, um, but her standing there in the ocean Um, It just reminded me a lot of the Tony Kushner scene in Angels in America where Patrick Wilson's character standing out there with, you know, in front of the ocean saying he's flayed and he runs into the ocean and is cleansed. But like Serena's looking at what's all before her. She's by herself. She's at her mother's house and she gives herself her own baptism. And it's extremely symbolic of, Christianity is extremely symbolic of, I think, the power she's trying to get back just for herself and herself alone. Um, but you, you're continuing to, un, uh, you know, unravel this onion that really is Serena. Right, right. And I think um, from a theological perspective, um, a woman baptizing herself herself, like choosing to do it herself, particularly a woman like Serena, whose form of Christianity is clearly patriarchal. She, she's not even allowed to read scriptural verses. She's 100% not allowed to baptize herself or rebaptize herself. Did you get herself. big love flashbacks? I did, actually. I, I'll, I almost typed that out in our um, outline because I know both you and I really, really loved big love and particularly loved um, the reclaiming of baptism by the women in big love. I think this is a this is theologically a big big moment for Serena and for women in general in Gilead like the idea that like I don't need you to find God. I don't need you to be worthy. I don't need you to be cleansed. I don't need you to repent. I don't need you for shit. And the fact that Fred sees her do all of this and she walks right past him is very important too because he's not a part of it. Like he is not a part of her healing or a part of her, like her, I, I hate the, using the term, but her come to Jesus moment. He's a bystander for the first time ever. And that is not the Gilead he planned for. And you see him really struggling with right. no longer being the, the figure that saves his wife. Because, you know, when you look at the scripture in which they go off of, the man is the head of the household. He's supposed to lead, you know, his, his, the women in his life. I mean, all this stuff. And now she's just, she's saved herself. Agreed. Agreed. And like, um, I've actually had this experience, interestingly enough, with friends from back in the day who became priests. And then I obviously left the church. And when we've talked again, they still think they actually have authority in my presence. <laughs> And I think it is extremely disconcerting where I'm like, nah, bro. Like, I, <laughs> I, li- I literally, like, no. It's like a big no for me. Uh, I, I'm not going to refer to you as, as father because you're not. Uh, I don't think you can wipe my sins. I don't think you're magically prepared for power. Um, I knew you when, so like sit down. So yeah, this was, this was very good. Um, 
I actually laughed and was like, John and I should do our own baptisms in the water someday. Oh um, my God. Right? We'll I invite everyone to take, I am take back the power. Take back the power. Oh, I'm not getting ordained by you. I will ordain myself, bitch. No, I'm saying I am <laughs> ordained. Like, you know, we can all get ordained and then, you know, bless ourselves. We don't need the ordination. I think that's the point. Yeah. Like, the point is you don't need to be ordained. You don't need to be a commander. Like, and she knows that. She knows that from the moment she read that Bible verse and was like, this is bullshit. Like, <laughs> I can read. You all know I can read. It's dumb to pretend I can't read. From that moment to the moment she walks into that water, which for her would mean so much. And the fact that she doesn't ask, ask Fred to dunk her or anything. She's like, I, I got this. Is extremely. I um, love that episode in Big Little Lot. And in a Big Love. <laughs> Big Little Eyes also going on. Very good. Uh, in Big uh, Love. The episode in Big Love that, that mimics this is, is or this mimics it is extremely powerful. So this is an episode where I thought we had a lot more that kind of didn't work for me. Oh, yes. Spill that tea, girl. <laughs> so um, But I, none of this is like out of left field. Like all of your stuff makes sense to me. Does it? I feel... Yeah. It's interesting because like I struggled with the reason it was so last minute for us to decide to cover the show is because the show is extremely triggering for me um, because a lot of it feels personal. Um, so I, I, I always try to like kind of take a step back from like my own experiences with restrictive religion and like particularly restrictive Christianity and kind of take a look, but I'm still going to harp on the fact that I I don't understand um, kind of like the sympathy that, that we still have between Serena and June. Like even the idea that they shared a child <laughs> like doesn't work for me because they didn't share a child. One stole a child, one bore Exactly. A child. And also like, listen, but, Serena, like I get you've always wanted a child, but like. No, I understand Serena thinking. Oh, you get that bond. Child. See, that bond did not work for me. I just oh, don't get all up in this Nicole thing. Serena is a true believer. Remember, I told you, I don't think she believes that it's rape. So for her, it's like the surrogate handed her the child. Um, and biblically, that is what is backed up, right? That the child it belongs to um to serena like so i understand serena thinking that her and june both gave up her child um their child but like i struggle with the idea that like there'd be some type of like bond or sympathy or you know like any i i just i'm i'm struggling with it i'm sure they're gonna build it out better but like I, a lot of the folks that I know who have been through religious trauma, like we heal, but we don't forget. Exactly. We don't like, and like, I will say like within my group of friends that were in my cult, there's like a group of like six of us that call ourselves like survivors. Right. And like, we all like, literally we're like a little gang of like, we, we know that the six of us got out and we're really lucky to have gotten out. But like, there's other folks that will occasionally reach out and like, I'm just like, I don't forget. Like, I know, like, I know what you did. I know who you are. Like, I've seen you. Like, just because you want to bond on one, one thing that we have in common doesn't mean that I have forgotten, like, fundamentally the trauma. So, so that's, like, difficult for me. Um, the other thing which I think is going to surprise you, actually, is the fact that, like, Serena's mother 
being detached doesn't work for me because this type of evangelical kind of vein of Christianity that would have led up to Gilead, motherhood is all women have. That's it. Like that's literally all, that's all you've got. And like being a good mother, being a warm mother, like is vocational. Like that is your vocation. Even if you're a cold, cold hearted stone bitch, right? You will at least do performative goodness because as a woman, the only performative power you have is as a mother. So like, while I understand her mom not being impressed with her, like Serena kind of like, I, you know, going rogue. Um, the fact that we know that even before she went rogue, she was like a cold, cold hearted bitch. Doesn't, it doesn't gel for me. And maybe I'm wrong. Cause I'm, I, I'm sure I have friends from back in the day who, um, like, so the, the cult that I was in didn't believe in any contraception, right? Like, which means if you got, if you wanted to have sex, you would be pregnant until you could not be pregnant again. And I have friends who have been pregnant literally for like nine years, um, since they got married. Um, I'm sure some of them didn't particularly feel called to be mothers. They just don't have an option to say no. But like, if Gilead is built on the fact that children were scarce, I don't, it just doesn't work for me. Yeah. And I just think that maybe the version of Serena and her mother got along before Serena really went through a lot of the stuff. So I think Serena's on a different level now. And that might be it. It might be that like her mom just no longer sees herself in her child and raise your hand. If when you become something, your parent is not, they take it very personally, (laughs) like very personally. Uh, so that's true. Very I true. hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought about that. Uh, there is nothing my mother has taken more personally than me divorcing myself from religion. Uh, so God bless her. She's, I mean, she's an, um, like, my mom is literally a saint and she's amazing and, and wonderful, but like, she stopped seeing a bit of herself in me when I walked away from Catholicism. And that will always be something that I know. And I wonder, you're right, if Serena's mom just can't see herself in her daughter. And therefore there's a bit of a detachment. Cause Serena had to probably sell her mother on this idea of Gilead too. Right. And so it's kind of like, going. That's it. I think she had to sell her mother on why she's there right now. Well, that's what I mean. But I'm saying like Serena's no longer the Serena of season one. Exactly. Exactly. Um, which again is really normal to have tension when, if you went from a super religious household to all of a sudden being this like resistor atheist, like fuck men, like mom's going to be like, I'm sorry, what? This is like, what? Sit the fuck down. Like, right. So um, it's the coldness. I don't understand the, the anger or rage. I could, I could definitely understand, but. Um, and then the only other thing that I think you and I both called out was the idea that June can manipulate it the commanders and Nick and Serena, the way that she does is a little, it's pushing a little it's a bit. stretch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that's it. And also I'm just over Nick in general. So bye. I don't have a lot and of he's, and he's no longer on this episode anymore. Right. Fred and Serena, like I, I'm not sure where this is going with them. Uh, I'm paying attention, but like she, she like tries to flirt with like commander lawrence and he's like fuck off man <laughs> like he's like i don't have time for this he's like i get out of here 
Right. Yeah. And Didn't I think he, doesn't Commander Lawrence also say something like, "I know what you do. Like you burned down houses." Right. He pretty much says like, "Yeah, I don't think so." <laughs> like, uh, so, so overall, like an an interesting kind of episode. We get insight from Commander Lawrence on why the Resistance is allowed to exist, um, and also how powerful he thinks he really is. We get insight on what happens to the people who are participating in May Day, right? And then we have some backstory into Serena's life and Serena's kind of rebirth. Uh, Very, very strong episode, um, I think, overall. I do, too. I loved it. Very good episode. Do you want to move on to to episode four? Four. Let's, Let's talk more about baptism. What do you think? God, they're really hitting the nail on the head here. I wonder like, I wonder if everyone else is seeing like the repetitiveness of maybe it's uh, like how useless baptism is. Uh, it's well, just, it's the know, power of ritual that they're utilizing. That is here. exactly it. Talk to me about the power of ritual. So, I mean, rituals are a major part of religiosity or community as part of religious affiliation. I mean, you have people that are non-religious that uh, participate in rituals and you have people that are extremely religious that participate in rituals from like, for example, baptism of which this episode opens with um, before pre-Gilead with, you know, June baptizing Hannah with her mother and everyone to then the baptizing this opening um, of this episode where we see we've seen other rituals so obviously the the rape the ceremony using air quotes for it, the ceremony is a ritual in gilead which is the rape of the handmaids is it monthly i can never remember which by the way is I, stupid fertility is not one day a month like that is really bad. i i can't remember what the actual ritual is i know there is they have explained it though right so here we open this episode with the baptism of the children of gilead that have come into the world um and you're right like ritual is extremely important both in cults and authoritarian regimes it's why like uniforms and marching and positions and titles and colors all matter um because there's something about ritual that lets us chill the fuck out so like i this this reminds me of um have you watched fleabag the show from amazon not yet (sighs) flea this is this is not a spoiler in any sense fleabag has this great scene where fleabag herself is in confession with a priest and she can't think of anything to confess and he gets angry and he goes confess something and she goes fine there are days where i wish someone would tell me what to do like all like everything like tell me what to do about everything like i don't want to think about a single thing i just want someone to tell me what to do and he struggles with believing her and it is one of the most authentic moments in that entire series and i think that the reason we are all and i use all because I mean all, the reason we are all so susceptible to cult mentality and um, and to a certain extent being influenced is because there is a part of us that just wants to hand over the decision-making, hand over the burden of this life that can be very heavy. Which is what you see explored in like things like The Purge and, um, and in our you know upcoming show that we'll be covering like Dark Materials, stuff like right. that. So, so I, I know that like having studied, um, like the type of 
like we talked about this in the purge the archetype of person who joins a cult is someone who you know low self-esteem looking for direction uh looking for like literally like a rigidity in in their day-to-day that is one side the other side is folks who who want power and control and see an opportunity to take it from people who are looking out of fear and self-doubt for a rigidity so it's interesting when we talk about rituals rituals we don't have to think about it we just do them right like the reason like a rosary makes you feel better if any of you guys have prayed a rosary or anything like that is the meditative practice of doing the same thing over and over and over again you don't have to think about it so baptismal rituals like is a it's an outward symbol of everything is great everything is cool this that we've done this a million times everything's normal the um what's interesting in the scene is we get this overhead shot of a ritual that they've, you know, these women have been through before. But did you notice there's a ton of empty seats in the church? Yes. That means that there is an, like, I didn't realize this until I was like listening to another podcaster who was like, we're supposed to take that as a sign that stuff is starting to crumble because there shouldn't be empty seats next to any commanders or there shouldn't be any women without commanders, right? There shouldn't be handmaids missing. And yet, I mean, they key to that when they're like Nick's going to the front in Chicago. Right, 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 right. So, and at the end of this episode as well. Right. And speaking of rituals and kind of like how, how deeply ingrained they are in us, the red and the blue, we've talked about this before, blue as a symbol of virginity, red as a symbol of like the fallen woman. I think it's interesting to just see everyone settle into their role, right? Without questioning whether that role is fit for them. Um, and how they walk and how they're let in. I mean, that's all right, part of the play. Right. But the fact that there's people missing is just a reminder that the resistance is happening and that none of these women, including June, are far removed from it because there's not just handmaids or, you know, guards missing. There are clearly commander wives missing, like stuff like that. And not just like Serena, whose child was taken and she refuses to go. So, um, it's interesting because the anthem that they come into is a very recognizable Christian hymn called Table of Plenty, mm, which yeah. is ironic. Uh, for Gilead, it, there is not plenty of anything, um, but particularly children. The idea that you would play that as you walk down the aisle, stolen children because there's a scarcity of children is just kind of like gross, right? So well, that's Gilead. That's Gillian. Um, and so then we have Aunt Lydia as the church woman that she is. I'm sure you'll defend her. Um, I'm not defending her. <laughs> I'm just saying I appreciate acting. She is a great actress. I, agree with you. I mean, you feel for Aunt Lydia in certain, I mean, that's the sign of a great actress and great material. Like you don't feel, I mean, I'm not going to be like, Oh, like if I'm like holding her over a mountain being like, I got to save Aunt Lydia. Like I'm obviously not being like, Oh, like you can be redeemed. But like, I want more of that story. <laughs> I was fucking with you. I know you're not defending her. And no, I, know I know also that people like Aunt Lydia, first off, you're right. It's, it's, you don't write flat characters, but also like our villains are never one dimensional in our own lives and, and in our artwork. Like if they're one dimensional, it's just, you, ha you haven't dug deep enough. So exactly. But Aunt Lydia um, 
tells the girls, right, that it's a huge honor that they're here at this baptism of their stolen children. My girls. My girls. Um, oh, it's so gross. And then that's triggering um, itself. She goes, Oh, my girls, Janine. Right, right. And I do think Janine loves Aunt Lydia because she has Stockholm syndrome, but also because yes. she was never the same after they like poked her eyeball out. Um, and so the idea that it's an honor is challenged almost immediately when June's walking partner, her new walking partner, um, like whispers, you know, I've already given up two children to, or given up's not the right word, because as far as we know, she is definitely drinking the Kool-Aid. She's like, I have given Gilead two children already. And like, June's kind of horrified, right? Um, what is her name? I thought it was three. Is it three? I think that's why June's horrified. She goes, you've done this three times. Three or two. Either way, it's too many. Either way, it's tremendous. Yeah. I don't know her name off the top of my head, but like you can definitely see her as being complicit in the system, especially like in that kitchen scene too. But I think June is horrified for her. Yes, because she has not yet discovered. Well, because June has has given up momentarily one child and it was devastating. No, technically two. Um, But to see this woman standing there watching these white women, she's a woman of color, holding these black babies that they have stolen. Like, there is a lot there to unpack. Like, a well, lot. Well, the woman that does have her walking partner's child is um, Asian. And, um, like, that's, I think the books are very, you know, there's been a lot of critique on race in the books. So I think that when you look at the ways in which they've tried to, the I guess, in the book and the television show they've like systematically kind of re-engineered so that way there's a broader conversation on race but they've definitely included kind of like you know there the purity culture of or like the ways in which you know like are the only good babies these white babies that these people have like you see the differences between the book and the television show right the book to a certain extent has a bit more of a white supremacy bent i actually believe this this more if the scarcity is children, these women will not care what color these children are. Um, exactly. And like, and so, and we we know that a lot from when you do deconstruction of white supremacy. Um, if you like, if you ask people like, do you trust like a, a woman doctor or a black doctor? Like, there are people who would straight up say no. And but then if you're like, all right, so you would rather not have a doctor than have a woman doctor or a black doctor like a gay doctor they're like well no then i will like scarcity creates a blindness to prejudice that like is worth critiquing because it shows how ridiculous the the like staircase of like racism misogyny is that it 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 only matters if it benefits the people on top right so like racism only mattered to the white folks in gilead when there were white children they like race itself stops mattering when there are no children um so the second that race is not a threat to their power then they don't care that the handmaids are black latinas asians they don't care like there's no there the top is no longer white the top is parent um and that's how deconstructing that all kind of happens um so we leave this uh, baptism with, like you mentioned when we opened this episode, this throwback memory of like June fighting with Luke to get um, Hannah baptized and how she wanted to go through that ritual and 
Luke thought it was stupid, but it meant a lot to June. Um, I think this is important because I think for a lot of folks, June is kind of like this anti-religious hero and like, she's not like she obviously it meant a lot to her because she fought with her partner to get her child baptized. The ritual itself is a part of who she was before, which means the ritual is not being imposed on her. It's just been corrupted. Um, but it's interesting that we get that memory because of the way this kind of episode comes full circle at the end, which we'll talk about. Um, but just, you know, snapshot in your head that like we do get a memory of June feeling very passionately that Hannah needed to be baptized. Exactly. Um, so then we go to this bouge ass party at the Putnam's house. Um, and if you yeah. remember the Putnam's, they they were Janine's, uh, I don't even know what to call them. I was going to say masters, but um, they were her family doesn't feel right either. They were her captors <laughs> the first season. Um, right. Yeah. They, she was their handmaid. Yeah. And like, so they go to this celebration at their house and, and the handmaids are invited, which is a huge honor. Um, I, I mean, would you have him invited Janine after she already tried to take your baby once? I don't know if they even control the guest list. I mean, like, I it's think that, right? like, I, I don't know why she's there. She's there for something narratively regarding Aunt Lydia, but like Janine go, girl, she's, she's got, she's suffering from Stockholm syndrome. Oh yeah. No, Janine is definitely, I mean, a, a really good kind of visual representation of like not coming back from trauma. Like, And, and, and Aunt Lydia is the same way on the opposite. Like she's, like I think you put it really eloquently in, you know, or outline. Like she's so on brand; she's not brandable. Right. I that like she's not on the camera selling Gilead to the world. She's literally everything they want her to be, but they don't want her on a camera because she's horrible. And they also blame her for losing Nicole too. So there's that whole other narrative because she lost a child to Gilead. Right. Right. Um. So they're at the celebration. I do think there's an important moment where Aunt Lydia thinks she's going to go mingle with the commanders and the wives. And like Miss Putnam's like the kitchen's over there, which is important because that was taking the wind. Like Aunt Lydia is very proud of her position. Right. And like to be told that she's literally not good enough to be in their presence. You can see Aunt Lydia stewing in that fury, like stewing in it. She goes from being so proud of bringing her girls to her the girls. party to being like in a corner upset because she is like, she's having to contend with like, oh, you're above the girls. You're still below us. Right. Um, which having watched systems of like, um, of power, it doesn't even have to be systems of power because I was going to go into like the hierarchy of some churches, but like for those of us who have jobs, right? If you ever watch a director or a VP be insulted by the CEO, they tend to come back to your office and like rag on you because like, if you can't punch up, you punch down. Right. Um, so she strikes back at the only person she can strike back at. And that's Janine. Janine. Right. 
I, did you love the scene when of uh, uh, when June like throws her body over Janine's body and the power that she had then in that strike down where like she stopped this attack that where that wouldn't have been able to be be done and I think seasons one or two. I do think yeah, I think this is a very very important scene. So at first I was confused, like I said, who would invite Janine back to the house, uh, but Miss Putnam when Janine sees her daughter right? Janine wants to hold her. And she's just kind of like, I just want to hold Angela. Like, and Miss Putnam says some biblical verse about forgiveness and, and lets her, gives her back. And then Janine overwhelmed, obviously she just had this baby, overwhelmed by this moment, begs them to take her back as a handmaid, right? Begs them like, and this is that nuance that I was talking about that is Stockholm syndrome, but like, also, like, who knows where the fuck Janine is right now? But for her, she's like, at least here I was safe. I, my child is here. I want to stay here. And Aunt Lydia, instead of removing her, which was totally something she could have done, pulls from that fury of before, and since she couldn't punch up, literally punches down and starts beating the shit out of her. And like you said, uh, like... June throws herself over Janine's body and says, no, no, like, no, that's all you hear is no, no. But what's more important is it's not more important. We, we will, we will take a moment to recognize that we all need to throw our bodies over the bodies that have no protection. That is our job as human beings of moral standing. Um, and I do think that this is a more empowered version of June but everyone in the room was horrified by Aunt Lydia's behavior, including commanders and commanders' wives. And this is important because... And June was able to stop it. Not only, it's not even that she was able to stop it. She was able to highlight the cruelty in that moment. Like, Aunt Lydia... Another crack in the system. Another crack in the system. Aunt Lydia is not some hero in that moment. She, like... And to me, this is again a reminder that they don't view rape as rape and they're not viewing this as stealing children because they do in that moment recognize that it is immoral to have beat Janine the way they did. Yeah. Can I ask you a question that's really off topic? Yeah. Um, do you think June survives the series? No. I don't either. And I think that this episode helped me get there in a way of understanding that and starting to become okay with it and i think and in our last episode we talked about like how we felt at the end of season two with june shutting that door i think that was the moment where june when she shut the door to go back for hannah she's like okay like i'm either gonna make it out of this or i'm not and i think she does it i think i in, in a perfect world i think she gets hannah i think she gets hannah out but, but that's a perfect world, and I'm not sure that's actually what I'm here for. So, so I think if we're being very realistic, there's no version of The Handmaid's Tale, um, and including the sequel that's coming, where there's a happy ending to this. And if there is a happy ending, then fuck this. Like, and I don't mean that from the perspective that I don't think that, that there is not an end in sight to oppression. I just don't think that was the purpose of The Handmaid's Tale. It was purposely vague in its ending 
because to a certain extent we were supposed to interpret that the of her getting day. into the back of the truck and being taken away as whatever we wanted to but the epilogue being the epilogue of which we won't i mean right. a lot of people don't know the epilogue of the actual we'll it book alone. itself we'll but, leave it alone but yeah but yeah i like i here's i don't need her to survive this i don't need hannah to survive this because the handmaid's tale was always supposed to be a warning it was never supposed to be blueprints for how we resist and if it becomes blueprints for how it res we resist and this might be a controversial take um I'm not like, I think it loses some of its power and, and I can understand why in 2019, all of a sudden we feel differently about it than we did in 1985. Um, because in 1985, it effectively felt like a warning, but it felt far removed. Right. Whereas right now we are all so desperate for hope for, for, for like, the yoke of like patriarchal evangelical bullshit to end that we might be misreading the the text itself but as someone who's done like literary theory who the fuck am i to interpret them the the kind of like the text as anything other than what it is in that moment right like um so if for some people like it would be again i don't think so i don't think it's necessary what the fuck do I know? She's picking up her pen, just like JK Rowling picked up her pen. And we will have to deal with the fallout of whatever this goddamn sequel is. Um, You've been triggered enough by, by JK Rowling. Let's not you. go there. How dare you? Do not think. Do not think. <laughs> For anyone you who- You want to really go back to Crimes of Grindelwald, Marcy. Yeah, you yeah. haven't listened to our episode on Crimes of Grindelwald and my complete, like, existential breakdown over when authors don't know when to let go uh we invite you to listen to that episode um but yeah okay so so yeah off topic no i don't think she makes it out of this um i would be i also think and this goes into the next point in our outline in regards to um the video of nicole with luke at the end and how resistance matters i think june gets luke killed i think he dies this season i'm not even gonna speculate that far i do think that there are like I don't know what Canada laws. They're playing with fire here with with Luke and Nicole. Um, so so yes. Yeah. So after this whole scene with Aunt Lydia, um, we have two two important scenes. Um, one being that there is a video that like some of the like guards show Commander Waterford of a a rally a resistance rally somewhere in Canada uh, where you can clearly see Luke and, and Nicole. And I want to say that there's a part of me that admires this. Um, I just thought this was not very realistic. Um, it just it doesn't seem very realistic to me, but the idea that like putting our bodies in dangerous situations in hopes of people feeling seen does make sense to me. Um, feeling seen and heard and so if in his head there is a slight chance that anyone will see him and will tell june that nicole is safe then that makes sense to me and you see that in her eyes i mean you no she, i mean she literally says like it, it the happiness that she feels in that moment is is quite um is quite a thing um and then we have this like scene where 
uh, Serena is in this gorgeous like pool room and like June walks in, they both pick up cigarettes and kind of just plot like and push each other as buttons in regards to how they're going to resist. Like June is like, here's what you need to do, Serena. Serena's like, here's what you need to do. Like they're both pissing each other off because I think they're both kind of like at a loss for what to do while they smoke these cigarettes. Obviously, June's going to be like, you, Commander Waterford is one of our tickets. Like, you need, to, you need to fake fix this. Like, you need to fake fix this and make, make nice because you have power and we need to be able to use it. Um, so, um, so, yeah, that, that's an interesting scene. Um, Do you want, I think the most powerful scene, though, in the entire episodes are with Emily and her reunion with her wife. I'm going to, I'm going to let you walk us through that um, first, because I, I, I know that that was just, again, Emmy worthy performance there. So um, we really have seen, um, so in episode four and the first, you know, first and second and third episodes we've seen Emily's progression towards you know getting out of the cult-like mentality and getting you know back indoctrinated into whatever normal depiction of society in which they're living in right but she has to go through very she has to go through small steps and so this next big step that we saw at the end of episode three was her calling her wife and letting her know she's alive because she didn't know. And now it's really, I think, you know, some t- a little time has passed and it's really meeting her wife and son and understanding that they've carried on. But the roles in which you see Emily walk through this and how trauma shows up here um, is beautifully depicted. And you see that although their life continued, she was always there. And that was really within the images that they'll never forget, right? And that um, the image of drawing of her, their son, Oliver, drawing mommy, you know, Emily mommy as a superhero, saying that she's trying to break free of Gilead just shows that they were always um, trying to hold on to the last string of hope. And I think Emily was too, because we saw her at her lowest of lows. And so when you really look at this reunion with her wife and son and the simple act of reading him to sleep at night and their tears uh, bring down all the veil and you really see what trauma does to people in these horrible situations and the power of getting out of it. Right. Um, I think that like every movement in that scene is, is just beautifully crafted to show how, how vulnerable you have to make yourself to heal and to not be afraid and to step back in um, to your skin after it's been taken from you, you know? Forcefully. And forcefully. Uh, uh, I think a, a you know a, a good parallel is you know women who talk about like what like how long it takes them to heal from if and and I use heal in air quotes because how long it takes them to be comfortable with physical touch after any type of violation right like it takes a very long time it takes a I, very long time to feel your skin again yeah to feel yourself again. Um, I'm seeing it a lot right now with how women are telling stories of their abortions. Um, Specifically with now the fact that, okay, there was a law in 1973 that made abortion legal. And now they 
lost friends. They maybe, you know, almost lost themselves because of how they, you know, had to perform their own abortions or go to a person that was to Roe in 1973. But, you know, they, everyone has um, pre-Roe stories. There's always a person with a horror story. Um, There's so many people that said we won't go back. And they really mean that because they are saying we won't go back to the times when we saw women bleeding out in front of us. Right, right. And and this now that they're there. It's it's extremely difficult to, um, to, yeah, it's extremely difficult to like to watch from afar, ret- like a ret- regression into oppression, which is what Emily's wife would have experienced, right? And then having to look at her wife and not even be able to imagine the trauma she's been through. For Emily, it is the unimaginable task of of trying to find normalcy again, to find herself post you know, this, this horrific, um, like time in her life. And then the, the fact, the pictures is really, really interesting. Um, people who have survived, like, um, there was this really good episode on, um, surviving, uh, the FLDS where this girl literally kept a picture of every single one of her siblings on her desk. And she said, it's just, she was like, I just need a reminder that like, they're still there and that like maybe someday I'll see them again. And like for people who have left cults, left any type of toxic situation and left people behind, we talked about this in the purge, there is always a part of you that will leave the light on for those that you've lost, right? Those pictures of Emily with Oliver in that room were Emily's wife leaving that candlelight on, leaving the light on for Emily and not giving up, still moving on. You move on because you have to. Like her wife has has a house, has a car, has a job. She has clearly moved on because she had to. But the pictures are a testament that like she never forgot the person she loved that she left behind and like for her it really metaphorically was a leaving behind because emily was like go go grab oliver go when they grab when they in in season two or one where we see that they got stopped at customs and they were like who gave birth to him and emily was like we see that in season two right so so i think it it is just such a beautiful again I, i really do like some of these episodes like landing on a final note of hope that for anyone who has a candle light on for someone that they've left behind in any type of situation where it was toxic or negative for those women who are looking back and are terrified of like regression or anything like that, like the light is still on, like um, there's hope, like there's hope. And, and like Emily coming back is a very hopeful storyline, even though it's painful to watch. So um yeah and then the final thing that i will add that this episode does really interesting is it shows us a much more reserved conservative more kind of religiously like we're watching a a completely broken down waterford and we mentioned this before i think this works for me like i think he is secretly like been neutered and that is okay i'm totally cool with that um so then let's close on a couple by commander. Um, I still think he's super sexy. Um, 
I don't. I, I thought he was more sexy in Shakespeare in Love, personally. Uh, well, no, of course. But you know how I feel about men in uniform. Yeah, but like, it's not even that good of a uniform. <laughs> it, isn't. it isn't. So things that kind of, I think, uh, we both agreed kind of didn't work was, uh, we've said it a million times at this point, like this whole Serena June buddy buddy thing. Like, first off, there are no cigarettes in Gilead. And I'm just, not for women. And I refuse to believe that a woman who so desperately wanted a child who like had fertility issues is just smoking. Um, I'm probably being judgmental because if there is anything I know is like you stress me out and I'm going to definitely reach for a cigarette. So I'm being judgmental, but I was just kind of like, oh, I just don't see this scene happening. Uh, tell me I'm wrong, John, because I think I am wrong. I think I'm just the First of all, I love a good cigarette scene, so you're not going to win me over on this one. I lived for that scene. <laughs> I... Uh... <laughs> I, I think I it's like contraband for them. I mean, I was fine with that scene. Right. And we know there's contraband. Like we know that like Commander Waterford gave June magazine. So of course, of course, Serena could find some dainty little rolled up cigarettes. I would prefer if they were marijuana, but whatever. Um, I think I, I had complained about like the, the focus on Commander Waterford because I'm not sure he's particularly that important anymore, but I'm going to hold judgment on that. Um, because I think he could be powerful with, I think June was, a, not June, Serena was the more powerful of the two of them as a symbol. So if she goes back to him, even if it's performative, I do think that's important. So June pushing for that makes sense to me. Uh, Serena giving June info on Hannah. I don't know. Serena's done this in the past, though. She has shown her moments of kindness where she let her right. see her. I mean, it was to manipulate her. But, like, I think that they're trying to get this, you know, this whole confidant bond thing. They're trying to further show that, like, Serena and June are going to meet on a certain level here. And, you right. know, yeah. But also, Serena giving info on Hannah to June means she's going to want info on Nicole. Right. Um, but the idea that Serena would inflict any type of pain on someone else losing a daughter is hard for me to, I think it's like a, you're right. Well, it's like now, a double edge. Yeah. Now, now but uh, before she would totally do that because she right. didn't have a daughter. Right. You're, you're right. You're completely right. This episode. Wait, what ends, was that? You're completely right. Thank you. But I'm about to be completely right. And if you disagree with me, you're wrong. <laughs> this episode ends with a big fuck you, I think to June. And I don't like it. Um, yeah. I, don't I, I really don't I, like it yeah so this episode ends with uh luke and myra is it myra well her best friend uh baptizing nicole in canada in honor of june fuck that shit man yeah i don't no, know no like just like fundamentally no uh religion is what got them into Gilead in the first place. You cannot convince me that even if there's a strong memory of June having wanted her daughter to be baptized, like I am pretty sure that Myra and Luke are really fucking over religion. So there is no part of me that thinks that they would think that June would want Nicole baptized. And I, I might be wrong about this. And like, I might be inserting myself into the idea that like, 
I would never do that because we do know June was religious and we know that like she can spout off Bible verses as good as Serena. Um, I just, it just, it didn't feel right to me. It, it just doesn't. I'm, I'm here with you. Yeah. So like, I, I just, there's no, there's no world where like, we're, again, this is like the rewriting of Handmaid's Tale 2019. Handmaid's Tale is a condemnation of religion. Religion and authoritarian power. But it is 100% a big fuck you to religion. June's child is not getting baptized in honor of June post her being taken as a hand. Like, no. I, I just don't buy it. So I know. So that's the end of episode four. <sighs> Blessed be. <laughs> Under his eye. There's a lot. There's a lot. Um, so in the next episode, we'll cover episodes five and six. Um, very exciting. Episode six drops later this week. Episode six drops Wednesday. Uh, episode five dropped this Wednesday. Great episode. So we invite you to join us next week when we drop uh, episode five, six. Under his eye. Blessed be the fruit, y'all.